Today we'll be in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. And it reads, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit." And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took him took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and called his name Jesus. Let's pray. God in heaven, today we ask as we look at this passage and what it means for us in the 21st century, Um, And what it means for the people in the time it was written. Please guide with your Holy Spirit, God. May these be your words and not mine. And may each heart here be ministered to. Mostly, may Jesus be lifted up. We pray in his holy name. Amen. Now the passage for today, it says that Mary was betrothed to to Joseph. Meaning... That they were engaged. Now imagine uh, during your engagement or or family member, somebody you love is engaged. And, you know, when we do engagements today, it's usually just between a man and a woman, many times in private, uh, many times when no one was around. But in the time of Joseph and Mary, engagement was meant that you involved the entire family and sometimes the community. And in in Joseph's time, when they would come to be engaged, they would uh, usually go to the bride's home and the groom would go with his family. There was a meal and there was a kind of a celebration and there was actually a contract that was written and it was signed by the groom and by other witnesses. This is not the official marriage yet. This is the engagement. The contract outlined the economic and social obligations of the future husband to the bride. And the groom would seal the contract by giving some kind of gift. We often call it a dowry to show that he had the uh, ability, financial or, or material ability to support this woman and a family. This engagement usually lasted at least one year. 
And sometimes, depending on the age of the bride, could last longer. This is the engagement, remember. Now, in ancient times, uh, a girl could be engaged as young as 12 years of age, which is kind of young. Now, of course, they expected at least one year for the engagement. So by the time she would get married, it would be around 13. But if she didn't feel ready or her family wasn't ready, the engagement could last even longer, maybe a year and a half, maybe even two years. So you see, all that goes behind an engagement in Joseph's time is much different than an engagement during our time. I know, at least during my engagement, neither Samako's parents nor mine were present. There were some friends watching, and, you know, it was a nice uh, uh, engagement uh, proposal. But you see how much is involved for engagement at the time of Joseph. And we often miss this when we say that they were engaged. Now, the Bible says that Mary and Joseph, they were betrothed, and for all practical purposes, they were already considered in many ways married. So much so that if Joseph would have died during their engagement, Mary would have been considered a widow. And she would have to go through mourning. Okay? This is how close they were to actually being married. So when the Bible says that Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant with child, what did that actually mean? It was as if a man had found out that his own wife was pregnant by another man. Joseph had believed in his mind, not knowing the situation yet, that Mary had committed adultery. What other explanation would there be? Now, you can imagine that maybe Mary, she tried to explain this to Joseph. Well, an angel told, came to me and told me that this child would be of the Holy Spirit. Now, remember, at this time, God had not explained this to Joseph. So what do you think Joseph's response was? Not only did she have an affair, but now she's talking crazy. Okay? This is just, remember, this is from Joseph's perspective. So, this is the situation. And we just kind of gloss over it sometimes when we, when we see that they were engaged and then Mary was found with child. But Joseph, the Bible says, he was a righteous man. He did not want to make an example of Mary and was willing to put her away secretly. This means that he was going to get a divorce. Yes, when they were engaged, if they were going to separate, it would be considered a divorce without exposing her. And all he had to do in order for this to happen was to write a certificate of divorce with two witnesses and give it to Mary with two witnesses signing. Now, he could have done this by taking the divorce paper, so to speak, to her parents, her father and mother, two witnesses, without exposing her to the public, to the community, to the authorities. So the Bible says he was thinking about how to put her, he was minded to put her away secretly. This is how he would have done it. And then they would be officially divorced 
Joseph would have been uh, read of this problem. He would have been read of this illegitimate child. And maybe in some way he could have averted a great crisis in his life. So he thought. Of course he would have to explain to everybody why they weren't getting married. He could have done all of this. But God came to Joseph. You see, Joseph and Mary are in a time of great crisis and distress. They're in a time of great crisis and, and Joseph is absolutely perplexed as to what to do with Mary and what do I do about this baby? What do I do with the both of them? Of course, on the line here is his own reputation. Not only that, but the reputation of Mary as well. Something is amiss here. Now you already, I've already explained to you how long the engagement is. The Bible doesn't tell us how long they had been engaged before Jesus, uh, uh, Mary became pregnant with Jesus. But let's say it only lasted a year. They get married and then maybe five months later, baby Jesus comes out, a fully grown baby, or maybe two months after their marriage, baby Jesus comes. People are going to ask questions, aren't they? No matter what happens, people are going to rumor about Joseph and Mary. So you see this great crisis that has come upon Joseph and Mary at this time. They are on the brink of divorce before they even really, truly get married and begin their lives together. All is not well in Joseph's house. All is not well with Mary, even though they are about to become the parents of the Messiah. Even though they are about to become the parents of the Son of God, they have been chosen, given the special, unique privilege to be the father and mother, earthly father and mother of Jesus. And not all is well in their household. Now, God could have prevented this crisis, at least for Joseph. He could, he could have prevented it. He could have told Joseph before he found out that she was pregnant. He could have sent an angel, couldn't he? He could have in some way told Joseph before he found out. But God did not do that. Instead, God shows up in the middle of the crisis to tell Joseph how to handle the crisis. And in the process, everybody's character is revealed. In the process, everybody's character is revealed. The Bible says here in verse 19, that when he found out that she was with, with child, he was a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. So this tells us in, in the midst of this crisis that Joseph is going through, it tells us something about the character of the person whom God had chosen to be the earthly father of Jesus. It tells us something about uh, Joseph's, how he deals with obvious, or what to him is an obvious case of adultery. Well, he's not going to just 
brush it over as if nothing happened. Let's just get married. You know, we've already paid for the place and all these other things. No, he's going to deal with it. But the way he deals with it is not making a public example of Mary. He's minded to put her away secretly. So he's trying to preserve the dignity of Mary. He's trying to preserve her dignity and maybe the dignity of the baby as well too. So it tells us something about the character both of Joseph and Mary. And it tells us something about the character of God as well too. Because God allowed this crisis to come upon the both of them. But God did not abandon them in the time of crisis. God did not abandon them in the time of crisis, but he gave them very specific instructions about what they were to do in that time of crisis. All they had to do was listen to what God was trying to tell them in that that moment of great perplexity. And you know, if you really think about it, that Joseph and Mary had to carry a burden Really, uh, it would seem to me to the end of their lives. Because as was already mentioned, baby Jesus would be born not nine months after their official marriage, because they're, already, they're only engaged at this time. He was going to be born before then. So there will always be these questions around, and we even read about this in the book of John, where Jesus is having a conversation with some of the Pharisees, I think it's chapter 6, I can't remember, but somewhere in John. And he's talking to the Pharisees, and they tell Jesus, oh, we're the sons of Abraham. We were not born in fornication. So maybe there's some, still some word or rumors around the birth of Jesus. So Joseph and Mary, they had to carry this very, uh, this, this, this burden, a special burden upon them probably to the, to the day that they died. And the record would not be cleared for, for those circumstances around the birth of Jesus until the Gospels were written. Matthew, some say maybe written around 70 uh, AD, 30 or 40 years after Jesus, long after the death of Joseph and probably the death of Mary too. So their record on them was not cleared until the Gospels were written. So you see, they had to carry this, this special burden, but God did not abandon them at this time of crisis. God was present in the crisis, guiding and leading and navigating them. And God promises to do the same for us. God promises to do the same for us. He doesn't promise to take away the crisis. He gives us instruction on how to go through the crisis. And today, if you look around, we are living in a world that is in crisis, even with this pandemic. I've never seen people wearing masks in church before in this country. I do it in lots of other countries. I've never had so many cancellations before for so many events in my life and so many disappointments. I can name probably about half a dozen very important events canceled, either that I was involved in or that, that was for uh, my, myself or something else. The world is in crisis right now and we can be assured God is on his throne. 
He is giving his people specific instructions at this very important time when the world is in crisis. And the question is, are we listening to the directives of God? Are we listening to the voice and the instructions of God? God's not promising that it's going to go away overnight. He's promising his presence. And that's what this whole passage is all about, as we'll see we get to the end. God is promising his presence. So he sends the angel to speak to Joseph and to tell him, Joseph, this child is born of the Holy Spirit. This is a special child. I want you to take this woman and I want you to take her baby as well too. You're going to be the father of this baby. Now this, this is very special to me at this time in my life as I was reading this this week because the baby was not his. Genetically speaking, I remember very and very recently I was doing a Bible study in, in Paris and we start, we're going through the uh, book of Matthew and uh, looking at all the begats here in chapter 1 and talking about, you know, so-and-so is the son of so-and-so. It goes all the way down to Joseph. And then it's, it's making the point that Joseph was a legitimate son of David and therefore Jesus is a legitimate son of King David. And I had a student, a young student, ask me, but how can that be? He wasn't really Joseph's son. So how can that be? You know, thinking biologically, thinking, you know, as we think in the 21st century, you know, that's not really his, you know, his offspring. He's, he's adopting him. But Matthew is making the point that Joseph was taking Jesus. He was making him his legitimate and legal son. And he was giving him a name. He was giving him a name. And he was making him his son. And therefore, he received all the rights and the inheritance of being a son of Joseph. And taking his name, then he would become a legitimate child of Joseph. And we see God bringing this family together that almost split that almost ended in crisis. And God brought them together. And we see this this theme of, of redemption. We see this even starting out in the life of Jesus. Again, we see this perplexing situation where it says that, that he's about to put her away secretly, but somehow God brings them back together. And God tells Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of what? The Holy Spirit. Now, at least twice here, the Holy Spirit is mentioned. And this is important because Matthew is a Jew. He's writing to Jews. And Jews... They especially connected the Holy Spirit with the work of creation. From the very beginning of the scriptures, this is a, a character. This is, this is one of the attributes of the Holy Spirit. 
in Genesis chapter 2. Verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then it says in verse 2, who was hovering over the face of the waters? It was the Spirit of God. He was hovering over the face of the waters. And so it introduces us to the work of the Holy Spirit as the creator. He's, he's creating life. He's taking this chaotic situation where the earth is form and without void. And he makes this beautiful planet. And all the lush green vegetation and all the life. And, and, and he makes, he's involved in, in the process of creating. It becomes God's beautiful creation. When we let the Spirit of God lead in times of uncertainty, when we let God lead in times of a pandemic, when we let God lead in times of either great or small crises, God will create something beautiful. When we let God lead, He will create something beautiful, even out of brokenness and great distress. The Holy Spirit can do this. Jesus can do this. I love the way William Barclay put it in his commentary on Matthew, talking about the work of the Holy Spirit in creation. He says, That power which reduced the primal chaos to order, came to bring order to our disordered lives. Has anybody here ever been in a time of crisis? Am I the only one been in a time of crisis? Okay? God is speaking to you today. That power which breathed life where there was no life. He came to breathe life into our weaknesses and our frustrations. We could put it this way. We are not really alive until Jesus enters our life. And sometimes Jesus has to re-enter our lives again and again. And I want to ask you the question today, are you alive? I'm not asking if you have a pulse. I'm not asking if your heart is beating. I'm saying, are you alive in Jesus Christ today? Is Jesus living in you the way God desires him to live in you? We are not truly alive, experiencing life to its fullest until Jesus comes into our lives. This is a work of the Holy Spirit to create. But the Jews also believed that the Holy Spirit was a very important work, not only in creation, but also in recreation as well. I don't have time to talk too much on this, but you remember the story in Ezekiel 37 uh, where Ezekiel is given a vision of these dry bones. And God says to Ezekiel, this is the whole house of Israel. And he asks Ezekiel, can these dry bones live again? And Ezekiel says, Lord, you know. And as the story goes on, God works to bring these dry bones. He puts sinew on them and he puts uh, muscle on them and he puts fat in in the tendons. And then he puts the flesh on them. And there they are, an army of God, 
And they only need one thing. And that is the Spirit of God, the the breath of God to bring them back to life. And God does that very thing. God is not only the God of creation, but He is also the God of recreation. Psalm 51.10, David says in Psalm 51.10 and 11, He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew, renew a a steadfast spirit within me. And then he says, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. So we see again the Holy Spirit, an important part of recreation, renewal. In Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit comes into the world the power to recreate life. God can and wants to renew our lives in times when so much seems lost. So in comes the work of the Holy Spirit, bringing forth baby Jesus into the womb of Mary. God sends his angel to give special instructions to Joseph to take this child and to give him the name Jesus. And the Bible tells us that this name, Jesus, has a very special meaning. Now, Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Joshua. And Joshua, what it means is a savior or or salvation. But what would Jesus save his people from? And as many of you know, we're all aware, their greatest hope and expectation of the Jews was that the Messiah would destroy their political opponents, the Romans, who were oppressing them. Imagine being enslaved to another nation. This is what they were enduring every day when they saw a Roman, you know, Imagine if the Germans or the Japanese had won the war, and that would be our lot. So this was their great hope. But it says, no, that he wouldn't come to destroy them, their political oppressors. He would save his people from their sins. Jesus did not come to save people in their sins, but from their sins. Something we see here in Matthew is that Jesus came to save people from the eternal consequences of sin. The eternal consequences. And that's where God's focus was at. What are the eternal consequences? What what is the real mission of Jesus Christ? He was not only thinking there locally with with these two and, and the Israelite people, but he was thinking eternally as well too. Now, while sometimes we have to suffer the consequences for our sins here and now, we can be assured that Jesus has saved us from eternal condemnation and death. We can be sure if Jesus is living in us. We have this redemption, as it says in 1 John. But even more than that, Jesus not only came to liberate people from the eternal consequences of sin, But he also came to liberate people from the power of sin in their daily lives, in our everyday habits. By the blood of Jesus, we are saved from guilt and eternal punishment of sin. By the Spirit of Jesus, we are saved from the bondage of sin that controls our daily life. Does anybody know what that's like in this room? Am I the only one? We need both the blood and the Spirit of Christ 
to overcome. We cannot have one without the other. This means we have to have both hands free to grasp the promise of Jesus. By faith we reach out for both the spirit and the blood. But in order to do this, we have to let go of any sins that we are holding on to with either hand. We cannot hold on to sin with one hand and reach out for the blood with one. It leaves us incapable of grasping everything that God has for us. We cannot hold on to sin with one hand and then reach out to the Spirit of Christ. It leaves us incapable of receiving everything that God has for us. We can only reach out for the blood and the Spirit with both hands to receive forgiveness. We cannot reach out for the blood to receive forgiveness, but hold on into holding on to iniquity with the other hand, causing us to ignore the spirit that brings transformation. This would be called cheap grace. Neither can we grasp only for the spirit of apparent change for outward behavior and neglect the blood that washes away our pride and self-sufficiency. We have to reach out for both. We must let everything go with both hands and receive both the blood and the Spirit of Jesus. Now, why does Matthew talk about this mission of Jesus to save from sin here? Give this name. It is, it is because of God's great objective in the very next verse. In the very next verses, Matthew says, All this was to be done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. God with us. The great objective that God had was to bring man and God together. But he could not do this if we're still holding on to our sins. He could not do this if we were still dead in sins. So first he takes the name of Jesus, Savior, Savior from sin, so that we can come into the presence of God, so that God could come into our presence and change us and make a way for us to the kingdom of heaven. Today, I would like to share, uh, finish with an illustration about a man named Telemachus. Telemachus lived, was a monk who lived in the time, maybe the height of the Roman Empire. He was a Christian living out in a secluded kind of wilderness setting, as monks do. In a, in a monastery type of setting. And he liked where he was at. He liked living out in the, in the, in, in, among God's nature. And, and he liked being uh, with the beautiful flowers and the peace and the calm. But one day, God called Telemachus to go into the city of Rome. And Telemachus did not want to go. He was not... Uh, particularly excited about going into the city of Rome. He knew what was there. He, he heard what was there. But God called him. 
Telemachus didn't know what he was supposed to do. He didn't know exactly in Rome where he was supposed to go. But he said, God, if you're calling me, I will go. So Telemachus goes to the city of Rome. And as he, he comes in, he sees these great statues and these great buildings that were erected to glorify man and his pride. And he sees all the hustle and the bustle of the people. He sees all of the excitement. And he is walking through Rome there, not knowing exactly where he's supposed to go. But as he's walking in Rome, he sees a crowd, this great crowd, elbow to elbow. They're walking into this great uh, 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 building. They're walking into this arena. And so as he comes close to the crowd to figure out what's going on, he's almost involuntarily carried along with this wave of people into what we know as the Colosseum in Rome. And he sits there on a bench observing what everybody is doing. And to his horror, he sees the gladiatorial fights. Men butchering each other and animals as well. The blood, the violence. Telemachus did not know that this was happening in Rome. And being a Christian man and being appalled by what he sees, Telemachus screams at the top of his lungs, He says, in the name of Jesus Christ, forbear. In the name of Jesus Christ, stop this thing. With all the excitement, he could barely be heard at first. But then the people around him started to become quiet as he got their attention. And the people around them. And soon, the whole arena was hushed, even as the gladiators were fighting. And he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, stop this thing. And then... All of a sudden, Telemachus, seeing he has everyone's attention, he runs down from his bench, down into the arena where the gladiators are fighting without any regard for his own life. He says, in the name of Jesus Christ, stop this thing. And someone from the crowd, some barbaric person said, thrust him through. And one of the muscle-bound gladiators, surprised at this humble little monk, stopping all of what's going on, their their gladiatorial fights, takes a spear and thrusts Telemachus right through the center of his body. This is a true story. Now he has everybody's undivided attention. You could hear a pin drop. And with his last dying breath, Telemachus says, In the name of Jesus Christ, Stop this thing. And he dies. In amazement and surprise and shock, the crowd is looking on, the gladiators are looking on, and then all of a sudden, one man stands up and he walks out. And then two stand up and they walk out. And then a hundred. And then a thousand. And before long, the Roman Colosseum is empty. And nobody is watching the gladiatorial fights. Now, historians say that there are many factors to bear. But soon after the death of Telemachus, the gladiatorial fights in Rome stopped. The bloody butchering, the violence, the the greed for this kind of violence stopped after the death of Telemachus. And it's written in history. 
And I think of that story. This man called from this very peaceful place to come and stop this terrible, terrible thing from happening without any regard to his own life. But what did it cost him? How, how did he stop this? By coming out of his secluded place, right into the center of the worst of the sins of the Romans. Right into their presence. And with his own life, he stopped the suffering, the blood, the, 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 the fights. He stopped this. And it changed Rome in a very special way. Church, that's what Jesus is trying to do for our world today. And that's what Jesus wants to do in each and every one of our lives. Some of us may be in crisis. There may be sin abounding. There there may be something happening in our lives that we desperately need for Jesus to come into the very center of the situation to change it all. And today, God is giving us that invitation to let Jesus in to the very center of our lives, the very center of the crisis. In the same way, the Spirit of God wants to bring calm and renewal. God wants to bring these things into our families today. He wants to bring this into our church today. He wants to bring it into our community and into a world that is in crisis today. With the shedding of his own blood, he wants to stop the violence, the sin, and the hatred and the violence. The message for us today is that Jesus came into the world to assure us of God's loving plan of salvation and his power to overcome the bondage of sin in order to usher each of us into the joyous presence of a loving God. My prayer for us today, this holiday season, is that we experience the presence of Christ like never before. In a fresh new way, ask God to renew you and your family with the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we think of his first coming, may it prepare us for his second. God, we thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you for this story of Joseph and Mary. And God, the reminder that you bring calm in the midst of crisis. May this be our experience today, and may we influence others to experience the same in our Savior Jesus Christ. God, we ask your blessing upon the rest of this Sabbath day, upon our fellowship and our travel. Thank you, God. Please dismiss us now with your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.